was like, yeah, we booked, uh, we booked some acts, you know, and being a small talent agent is very difficult because like we would work with, we would work with groups on the street that were getting a buzz. This is in Hollywood. So like, for instance, we had this one group that we were working with pretty heavily and trying to get good gigs for them and this and that. Their name was The Bangs. And they signed a, a deal with a, a manager, a real manager. The bass player was the manager when we were working with them. And they signed with a real manager, got signed to a real record deal, changed their name to The Bangles, and then changed their agent to some, you know, William Morris or something. It was like, okay, you guys, thanks. Yeah, what are we going to do? Thanks for the step up. Now we're gone. You know, we're going we're gonna to go out on tour, you know, with an agency. It's like who can you put us out on tour with? And um, is this is this audio okay? I feel a little bit boomy, but... Yeah, if you want to just point it more, up a little bit more towards your mouth. Perfect. And I can crank you in here. Anyway, and you did that for three years? Yeah, for three years. Yeah. And then I, you know, I had a degree in journalism, so I went back and did that. You know, I was kind of doing some stuff when I was young, playing in some bands, working in the music thing. And then, uh, so, okay, got to get back to reality. I'm going to work as a journalist. I'm going to write for newspapers. Journalism was kind of that reality check? Well, that's what I had a degree in, and that's what I expected to do. So it's kind of like, you know, you get a, maybe you get a degree in um, petroleum engineering, but you want to go out and go around the world first and then go higher up with Shell or something after... Yeah, I have not hit that phase yet. I'm still, I'm in my podcasting era still. Yeah, well, yeah, so that's, uh, that's good. I don't know. How do you, how do you get any revenue from a podcast? I'm really not that familiar with it. That's the million dollar question, you know? I think that's part of the process I'm, I'm still working through. You get, you can run ads and get payment through ads or sponsorships and stuff like that. It all depends on the size of your audience, how many people are listening and what you can kind of leverage that into. Yeah. Merch is another big one people go through. Yeah, I, I, had, I, I teach a, a bunch of classes for Ollie. That's how you came across me, right? Yeah. So, and I've done a, several Bigfoot ones. And one of the people who signed up for my class, turns out she wasn't from the area. She's Tennessee or something like that. She, she identified herself as she works in marketing for the podcast industry and i just sort of said there's an industry <laughs> you know that's kind of where i'm at i'm like i'm a little um behind the curve i'm i'm a little low tech now yeah i think it's i mean it's huge now people are making an incredible amount of money doing it it's kind of filled this interesting void between radio and an internet format do you have a a, a clock I do not. Do you have a hard out? You want me to? Well, I, I need to. I need to be somewhere at three thirty, but not far away. Okay. We can get it. Can I get you a water or anything? You, that'd be good. That'd be yeah. good. We were just talking. Actually, there's that for you. Thanks. I was actually interested to get your thoughts because we were just talking before you walked in about the strike on the hospital. 
and kind of just the unfolding Israel situation as a whole. And you have actually been there back in 1981. Is that what we were saying? Yeah, I graduated in 1980. I guess that sounds like the dark ages now, but graduated in 80 and then I spent a year overseas. Most of that was in the Middle East. And six months I lived in Jerusalem and I also worked on a Jewish kibbutz near Gaza. The next, the first Jewish settlement north of Gaza is this kibbutz that I worked on. And I have a substack. You know, it's, I guess, the, the journalist equivalent of a podcast. I got a substack um, called The Catholic Farmer, and I wrote a recent memoir of the Palestinians that I met. I didn't know any real Palestinians till I went over there. And that was back in the day when nobody was talking about Palestinians. And so it was kind of an eye-opener, and I, I met some, and so I wrote a little blog, I guess you call it, a Substack article called um, Return to Gaza. And it's, I, I mentioned several of the people that I met there, student body president of Berzet University, um, a priest from Nazareth. Uh, I had two roommates who were uh, pacifists. So they were Jewish Israelis, but they didn't like Israel and the army were doing to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. One of my roommates at the kibbutz was a Jewish pacifist from Uruguay who refused to sign a loyalty oath to the dictator of Uruguay, refused to serve in their army, got jailed in, in solitary confinement, tried to get out. Nobody would take him. The U.S. wouldn't take him. Because U.S. was back in the dictator. Nobody would take him. Israel would take him because he's Jewish. Now, he wasn't a practicing Jew, but he, was, he had the pedigree. Goes over to Israel, gets in the army, because that's what everybody has to do in Israel. You, every citizen has to serve in the army. And you have to serve in the reserves, I think, until you're 55. So he goes over. He's out of solitary confinement, but now he's in the Israeli army, and one of the first things they do is invade southern Lebanon. And the uh, Latani operation that he was involved in, the purpose of that was to drive all the Muslims out of southern Lebanon so they could turn this buffer zone over to the Christian Arabs, so divide and conquer, try to create a buffer zone between Israel and the PLO. And when he protested what he considered to be war crimes in southern Lebanon, they threw him in jail in Israel. These guys are my roommate on the kibbutz. You know, so I'm just like meeting these like amazing people. And so I anyway, wrote about that on my substack. When I was reading that, and I thought you had an almost measured take that you're not really seeing, at least right now, in relation to what's going on, is that it's not black and white the situation there's not this bad guy and this good guy and we just have to fall in line and support the good guy it seemed like you were kind of conflicted that there are issues on both sides and you have to take an almost you have to take a step back and kind of look at the situation of where we are today well and this is relevant to a discussion of israel or jfk or whatever or bigfoot from a journalistic point of view what you're trying to do is determine what happened Okay, what happened? And we live in a world that I think has become increasingly all about why I think it happened, 
why I think things are the way they are. And there's a lot of opinion and there's a lot of connecting of the dots and not so much attention on what the dots are, what actually happened. So, you know, from a, I would consider somewhat neutral place, a journalist is supposed to like look at what happened, what are the, what's the evidence, what are the sources. You're only as good a journalist as you've got sources. What are your sources telling you? Where are they converging? What seems to be the narrative supported by multiple firsthand sources? So just try to have a discussion about what happened in Israel slash Palestine over the last, whatever, 60, 70 years. Just having a discussion of what happened usually breaks down into a fist fight after about 1948. And... um people get into this argument about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, and they're not really focusing on what exactly happened. And when you focus on what happened, I say, in a place like Israel, in in a place like Palestine, Gaza, the West Bank, Lebanon, wherever, when you focus on what happened, what you find is that, that a lot of things happened to real people. A lot of things happened to people who had absolutely no interest in those things happening to them. They were caught in some kind of game somebody else was playing. And I, I feel for those people. So when, when Hamas breaks through the wall and goes out and kills a bunch of people in Israel, I think that's wrong. It's just as wrong as all the people who got killed in Gaza by the Israelis. They're doing the same thing. They're becoming each other. They're becoming the evil that they want the world to denounce. And that's sad. That's why I consider this a sad day, because we're not seeing, at least in my lifetime, any progress towards people recognizing the basic humanity of everyone else. We're just seeing people drawing lines and saying, my tribe, I stand with blank. You know, and it's like, I don't care who you stand with, you know. I'm standing for everyone. Why not? Why can't I say, I hope Israel has peace, I hope Gaza has peace? Why do I have to take a side and say, only my people should have peace? Only my people should be secure from violence? No, everybody. I'm sorry. Soapbox over. <laughs> well, that seems counter to, again, what is just being thrown out by most people at least in this online format is that you have to pick a camp and if you're in the wrong camp we're going fisticuffs we're gonna i mean there's no other option we can't debate the issue if you try to debate the issue you're anti-semitic on the one side or you're pro-terrorist so yeah and then there's you can't even say i'm not really familiar or i don't know enough to formulate a real opinion even that silence is now violence. So what can you do? Yeah. And as a, as a journalist, what I try to do is speak of that, which I have seen. It's, I also speak of that, which I read about, but, um, I think what's most important for me to say at this point in my life is what have I seen with my own eyes? Not, uh, what, what do I have a theory about? And so much of what I see, especially in the, uh, social media environment, is people saying what their opinion is. 
about stuff they read. And that's if they even read it. If they even read it. Usually it's they saw a YouTube video, you know. So um, if anyone thinks that they can stack their YouTube video library against my 50, 60 books I've read about the Middle East, you know, go for it. But um, what I have to say is about what I've seen. You know, firsthand sources for the journalist is super important. Everything else is kind of secondhand. Now, you may have to do that. You may have to go with secondhand sources. You may have to um, look at documentation. But whatever you're trying to do, you're hoping to drill down to that firsthand level where these people saw what really happened. And what do they say happened? It's interesting hearing you say that because as someone that has grown up outside of the journalism world, but in the internet age, it doesn't feel like that is the norm anymore. It feels like the norm is, okay, I have this bias. Now I'm going to go out and look for information that supports my bias. And this is, this is the situation. There's no other side. This is, this is what it is. And I think, you know, if I were to analyze the difference between your generation and mine, I would point to a newspaper. When I was growing up, and my first job was throwing newspapers at the door to door, you know, and I was the only kid in the world that lost money delivering newspapers. But, you know, in, in that day, you got the newspaper. You, you opened it up and you read whatever you wanted. Maybe you liked the sports page. You went to the crossword. You looked at the opinions. You went to the local news or the national news. And you had this, like, kind of spread of what was going on in the world. What we have now is internet platforms that want to sell you something. So they figure out who you are and what's going to make you comfortable, what's going to make you mad, what's going to make you excited, what's going to make you get your wallet out, and they sell you stuff that's targeted directly to you. You don't see anything else. These algorithms are designed to feed you shit that you want to hear or that will make you agitated, that will make you do something, will make you click on something. So it's like this complete, to me, it seems like a complete manipulation. It's not, okay, here's the paper, and what's in the paper, and what's going to be in the paper tomorrow, and I'm going to follow that story, and maybe I'll read this paper. When I was in college, one of the things I did was I read foreign papers. You know, there was a publication called the Utney Reader, and this this publication uh, specialized in all these like different media. And then there's the World Press Review that I subscribe to, which would give you articles from India and and England and China and South Africa or Australia, and Getting that kind of diverse input, I think, is super important if you care about finding out what actually happened. But, you know, that's really... (coughs) You know, that's maybe a thing of the past because newspapers can't make money anymore and... and, uh, YouTube can, TikTok can, so well, that's follow a, the money. Well, yeah, and that's changed the incentive structure for the journalists themselves because 
you got to write something clickbaity. You have to, otherwise it's not going to get clicks. You're not going to bring in any money and you are no longer a journalist. Right, right. And, uh, you know, that's, I mean, we used to battle with headline writers. So you write a story and your editor sees it and the editor says, okay, I'm changing this and that. Why don't you work on this? You do another draft. Your editor goes, okay, kicks it up to maybe a managing editor, kicks it up to the desk. The desk figures out where it's going to go and how long it's going to be and how it'll fit. And then the headline writer writes the headline. Now, hopefully the headline writer read the story, but a lot of times they didn't. Hopefully they'll at least read the first lead or you know, the first three paragraphs or something and base their headline on that. Our headline writers usually did, but every now and then you get a headline writer who kind of skimmed the first paragraph and writes a headline that doesn't actually capture what the story says. Fast forward to today, the headline writer is trying to figure out how to write something that you'll click. That's, it doesn't matter whether it matches the story, it, it, it's the essence of the story, it reflects what the story has, it doesn't matter. What matters is, I want somebody out there to click on this thing. So it's a completely different world, and good luck figuring out what actually happened. <laughs> well, that's been one of the scary things for me, watching this Israel-Palestine situation play out, especially on Twitter, is there are just so many different viewpoints and everybody is bringing a set of facts, but 90% of these facts are manipulated. They're fake images, they're fake videos, they're AI-generated stuff. And thankfully, X has the community notes feature, so they'll fact check it eventually. But you, I've seen one story come down and then 20 minutes, seen it again and it's fact checked. And then 20 minutes again, you see a different story that gets fact checked. And if you're only catching the first part of those stories or you're only following a certain narrative, you can't even trust the information anymore. And it's important as a reader to immediately identify the source of the story. Again, if you're reading opinion, if you're listening to some bombast on YouTube, you, you know, that's your source. But if you're actually looking at legitimate news reporting, you're going to wonder what the source is. And so that's the first thing I look at. Is this a government source? Is this an intelligence source? I have to say, and this touches on the JFK issue, I don't know if you want to get into that or not. But, yeah, I do. But um, intelligence sources are in the business of manipulating information. I'm sorry. Now, maybe back in the day, you'll have some kind of high-minded intelligence person that really felt like, you know, we need, to, we need to have the truth. We need to tell the truth. But for the most part, people who work for the CIA are not in the business of telling you the truth. They're in the business of promoting a certain policy. And in fact, the CIA has helped us get into a whole bunch of wars because that's what served the interests of the government not because what they were saying was true. So, I mean, if I'm reading an intelligence source, whoa, get out my pound of salt. If I'm reading a government source, well, maybe a half a pound. Because, again, that government source may not be in the business of lying to you like a CIA source might be, but they definitely want to spin it somehow. And, you know, to be honest, everybody wants to spin things. You know, they want 
they want to have a message that they, I agree to this message kind of thing. But um, finding sources that can give you more neutral information can help you figure out what actually happened. It's an important task, and there's not a whole lot of that of that source finding uh, going on. Now, one example is Seymour Hirsch. Now, Seymour Hirsch has really laid down some bombs lately. He's really thrown some bombs lately. And to me, the biggest one he's thrown was kind of when he reemerged on the scene after being sidelined for decades, was who blew up Nord Stream. And so Seymour Hirsch came out with a story that said he had a high-level intelligence source tell him that the Biden administration planned and executed the bombing of Nord Stream. And the mass media, the mainstream media, by and large, denounced this because he used an anonymous source. <clears throat> well, you know, they all use anonymous sources, it seems. Uh, the question is, in some ways, if, if a journalist is using an anonymous source, what the journalist is saying is, trust me that this source, who I can't name, is, 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 knows what they're talking about. Trust me. Now, in the case of Seymour Hirsch, I would say I would be inclined to trust him because of his amazing track record. Decades of digging up stories that everybody else wanted to like ignore or wanted or, to bury or bury. Yeah. So that doesn't mean that everything that Seymour Hirsch writes is true. He's basing it on sources and what they're telling him. So you gotta, you gotta do that. You gotta say, well, okay, Seymour Hirsch's source said this, his source said that the Biden administration through the D department of the Navy, came up with an idea to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. All, everybody comes out and says, nah, it's a bunch of crap, you know, they, he didn't do that. And then a story emerges that there was a yacht named Andromeda that was hired in Poland by some Ukrainians, and that may have been the ship that was involved in this. And, and so the actual official line of the United States became some pro-Ukrainian group not associated with the Ukrainian government or the United States did this. Well, that's after they tried to pin it on Russia. Well, I mean, that's after yeah. the whole gambit of, oh, it was Russia. Oh, well, now we don't know who it was. Right. It definitely wasn't Ukraine. Right. It wasn't any of us. So I guess we'll never know. Yeah. Right. And then finally it started to trickle down to, okay, maybe it was, you know, some fringe pro-Ukrainian party that wasn't involved in the government and didn't have ties to the West and did this and then somehow. Seymour Hersh's source comes back and says that the Andromeda story and the pro-Ukrainian group was a disinformation campaign designed by the Biden administration and the German government to cover up what actually happened. So his source continues the narrative by saying, uh, the disinformation campaign came next, and what you just what you described. Um, it seems to me like, as a journalist, you want to kind of get 
all these sides. So when you say Russia did it, that was the Ukrainian position almost immediately. The Ukrainians said Russia did it. The Russians, do you remember who they blamed? They blamed the British. And when the Russians blamed the British, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because the British could probably pull this off. You know, maybe uh, Daniel Craig in his tuxedo was out there. I don't know. But yeah, the British could have done this. I'm not so sure a bunch of pro-Ukrainian non-government actors in a yacht could have. But the British could have done it. Well, you know, but the, the, the Russians didn't blame the U.S. and they didn't blame Ukraine. They blamed the British. And then, of course, the Germans, the Danes, and the Swedes are investigating it. They're investigating. It's been over a year. No results of the investigation have been really put out, except for some, some leaks in the German press about, about this yacht and stuff like that. Uh, German intelligence sources. Um, so then, you know, Russia kind of backpedals and said, well, gee, maybe it was the U.S. You know, so we don't know what actually happened yet. It's been over a year. We don't know what exactly happened to Nord Stream. And uh, I'd, like, I'd like to know. I wish I, wish I had some some uh, frequent flyer miles so I could go over there to the Baltic and see what's going on. But Well, the challenging issue with, with Seymour Hersh and all of that is that you had this extremely credited journalist prior to him publishing this article, and then the article comes out, and not only do people try to discredit the article, they turn that on him and try to discredit him as a fraud, mm-hmm. as a fake. Right. Nothing he publishes is factual. Don't listen to this guy. He's some fringe lunatic who went underground and clearly never came back up. And so how does that incentivize people to actually do any real journalism? Yeah, it's tough. And I'm, what I'm seeing, and maybe I'm, maybe I can't say I see this firsthand. Maybe you could say it, but what I'm hearing about is the clamping down on alternative narratives that um, I guess where I saw this the most was in COVID where the amount of peer pressure to go out and get the vaccine was more immense than any peer pressure public campaign thing I have ever seen in my life. I, I, I was, my mind was boggled at how bad people wanted to make you feel about questioning the vaccine. And I think the vaccine was questionable. I think that a rational person might have some questions about it. If nothing else, you might wonder if the mRNA uh, technology, which was being developed pretty much for the first time for mass use, was a good technology. You're talking to someone who thinks maybe uh, we, have, we don't quite understand the long-term effects of the electric light bulb, let alone the long-term effects of cell phones, let alone the long-term effects of microwave ovens, let alone the long-term effects of vaccines. Nobody's really studying the long-term effects of anything. Technology marches forward. 
there's a dollar to be made, technology will be sold. If there's a health hazard, you'll be told later, usually after you sue. So I know for me, it was like, you know, I've had vaccines, you know, when I was a kid. But when I was a kid, you got about three. You had a lot more than three now. Yeah, like my kids were supposed to get like 60 or something. I was like, what? And then now we have a new technology to develop these vaccines that don't involve the original old school idea that you give a little bit of it to somebody and they develop natural antibodies. It was something that would get your genome to sort of manufacture antibodies. I don't know. I want to wait and see what the long-term effects of such a vaccine are. I want to wait until somebody develops a COVID vaccine that doesn't use that, that uses the old school tried and true idea of give them a little bit and they'll develop antibodies. But to even question it, I think became this like maelstrom of, of, of scorn. I just had never seen it before in my life. It was a big wake-up call that, wow, um, somebody out there really wants you to do what they say and feel bad about anything else. And if that person were, were to have a name, I would call it Big Brother. You know, Big Brother that Orwell wrote about, you know. Well, now they're going after Orwell. Did you see that? No. They're calling him a misogynistic racist or something. Oh, yeah, he's probably guilty of rape, right? Yeah. It, if you were, I I, I was going to say conspiratorial, but even if you're just slightly paying attention, it feels like the rate of all of these things is ramping up. There were, the time between crises is now shrinking. You, we had you, the Ukraine war. That's now been put on the back burners. Nobody's talking about that now because we've got this issue. We had COVID. It feels like we're just, we're almost ramping up to something, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we kind of forgot about China and Taiwan for a little bit. and They'll be back on the scene. But um, the notion that all of these, all of these questions can best be addressed through military action, I think is a, a premise I seriously question. Um, I don't, you know, in my lifetime, there's been nothing but war. I was a kid when the Vietnam War was going on. I had an older cousin who fought in Vietnam. What I learned from Vietnam as a high school student, because it was kind of over when I was in high school and I wasn't in the draft, you know, the draft ended and my older cousin came back and eventually died from Agent Orange-related illness. But what I learned from Vietnam was the government had lied because the government had said to us, if South Vietnam goes communist, the entire world will. We have to go there now and stop the communists. And if South Vietnam goes communist, it'll just be boom, 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 the domino effect, and we'll all be Marxist-Leninists in a generation. That was a complete falsehood. Vietnam fell, shall we say. The North Vietnamese don't think they fell. They think they won. South Vietnam went communist. We're still here. The rest of the world has not gone communist. The idea that these wars are needed because we won't be secure without war is like the biggest lie of my lifetime. 
I haven't seen any of these military conflicts bring about any kind of real peace, especially in the Middle East. The issues that they're arguing about now, they've been arguing since I visited there in 1980, and nothing has changed except the Israeli plan to de-Arabize the occupied territories has marched on. And in my Substack blog, I mentioned this plan that I was told about by some aid workers in 1980, that uh, you know Israel wanted the West Bank, wanted the Gaza, wanted the Golan, but there's a whole bunch of Arabs living there. So if you just take it, like if you go with the 67 war and you just say, okay, these will be our new boundaries, guys. We took everything back. If you just take it, you inherit about a million, two million, I don't know how many million, millions of Arab citizens. And eventually, given the demographics of Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs, uh, you would have a, a democratic state with a majority population Arabic. And the Zionists didn't want that. Zionists being a political philosophy that says Israel has to be by necessity a racial, a racially based state. Uh, so there's only a few of those racially based states left in the world, and one of them is Israel, where if you're a Jew, you are, it's understood that you have more rights than anyone else in that country, and your survival is more important than anybody else in that country. So this kind of apartheid, I think is a good word for it, system has existed. They're still arguing about it now. War has not changed the reality for people. The one example that I think is pretty striking is Ireland. So we're, we're, we're talking now here about 25, uh, don't quote me, years since the passage of the Good Friday Accords. So in Ireland, they had a whole bunch of terrorism. They had the IRA in Northern Ireland blowing shit up. They had the British-supported Northern Irish putting down the Catholics. And the Catholics and the Protestants got together and they said, enough. Enough bloodshed. And they had a ceasefire, which is held to this day, maybe 20 to 30 years later. And I got to meet the Catholic guy of the Catholic Protestant team that forged the Good Friday Accords. I met him in Northern Ireland. His name is John Hume. He's now passed. But I got to meet him because they were unveiling a, um, a, a mural for him. And it had four Nobel Peace Prize winners on the side of a building. Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and John Hume. Who's that? That's the Catholic guy who got together with the Protestant guy and said, we've got to end this. And they did. And we aren't having post offices blown up. And you know, the madness in Ireland is over. Now we'll see where that goes in terms of the future of Northern Ireland. but. I'm real happy, and I'm one quarter Irish, so I'm real happy that the damn Irish stopped fighting and did something, and they did, and war didn't make it happen. Talking to your enemy made it happen. 
End of sermon. Do you envision something like that being possible with Israel and Palestine? Or how do you see this all playing out? You know, I, I couldn't speak to that. Um, I just think that my the only word of wisdom I can give you as a 65-year-old journalist is look for common ground. To me, this is what doesn't happen. This doesn't happen in a lot of international relations. It doesn't happen in terms of our own internal, domestic, American relations. People always gravitate towards that which they want to have a fist fight about, and they don't really work on finding common ground. So there's a whole lot of common ground, I think, between various tribes in the Middle East and various tribes in the United States. And if we spend half the time looking for common ground, building on common ground, instead of focusing, if we spend half the time doing that, that we do fighting over stuff, we might see some real progress. But that, I don't know if that's true or not, but that it's, it's got to be interest-based negotiation around common ground. A lot of the rhetoric right now seems that there is no space for common ground. That Hamas and by some extent the Palestinians living in the West Bank and in Gaza more specifically are almost an existential threat. They're an existential threat to a Zionist paradigm. Um, and let me just mention Zionism again. Uh, I mean, I don't blame people for being Zionists given anti-Semitism in Europe prior to World War II and then what happened in World War II. I understand that Jews might feel like nobody has their back and it's really up to them. Nobody will stand for them. Nobody will help them. No one will be a genuine friend. I can understand that feeling. So you've got a, a traumatized population. Jewish people, especially Israelis, are highly traumatized because it wasn't too long ago and they were gassing their relatives. And that's just unthinkable. It's unthinkable that that happened. And we like to think that it would never happen again and we're all good friends with the Germans now, but the unthinkable happened. And I don't blame anyone for thinking, shit, I got I'm on my own. I got to do this. I don't care about anybody else. I got to do this. Unfortunately, Palestinians are now traumatized. And I don't blame them for thinking nobody has our back. They came in and they basically kicked us out of our homes and they never settled up. They never, the international community never did anything to help us. And so, what, in Gaza, for example, Gaza was a refugee camp in 1948. Imagine what a refugee camp looks like. It's a bunch of tents and some, you know, some uh, medic clinic, some tent, some tents set up for a clinic and you got food trucks coming in and, and, and soup kitchen lines. Imagine a, a refugee camp. The people in that camp had fled 
from their villages just north of Gaza, places like Ashkelon and Ashdod and Majdal. That's a, a town that Mary Magdalene came from. They left those villages and fled to a safe area to the south and waited to see what was going to happen. And what happened was a ceasefire was a ceasefire to the 48 war and Israel declared the state of Israel and all the lands that they occupied were part of that state. And those people in Gaza could not go back to Ashkelon, Ashdod, Majdal, any of their villages. They couldn't go back. They're waiting because the UN, which kind of, you know, unfortunately got us all into this, had passed a bunch of resolutions. And some of those resolutions were, you know, you got to negotiate this thing. You can't just go taking people's homes. It's like against the law now. So the people of Gaza waited. When I visited them, they had been waiting 35 years. So the tents were gone and cinder block buildings were up and sewage is running down the middle of the street and kids are playing soccer and goats are running around and they're waiting to see if they're going to be able to go back to Ashkelon and Ashdod and Majdal, where their homes have been given away to somebody else. I don't blame those people for feeling like nobody has their back. Everyone's against them. They just got to do it themselves. They've got to take that gun and do it themselves because no one's going to help them. Traumatized Israelis, traumatized Palestinians. Huge huge problem. And I don't blame any of them. All I can say is, is there a way to peace? Can we just maybe put down those weapons and put aside all the argument and all the hurt? And can we just maybe find some common ground? We're all human beings. We all need the same things. Can we all agree to that? I mean, talk about common ground. Do we believe that human beings are all human beings or do we think that some of them are demons? I mean, I'm reading stuff when they talk about the demonization of things. I'm reading stuff that basically says Hamas are demons. They're not humans. Israelis are demons. They're not humans. We got to get beyond that. I mean, that's, they're not demons. They're humans. And we need to, to find that common humanity and build those bridges. I have friends who are now living in Jordan who have tried to do this in their lives by like having soccer teams that have Jews and Palestinians on them and trying to, the, the common ground, how to, you know, can I kick this ball? Whatever it is, you know. As long as we buy into this notion that we got to solve everything with weapons and I'm going to go make some more and I'm going to sell some more, that's, I think, the biggest crime. If Looking back in my lifetime from being five years old when JFK was killed to the present time, the biggest crime that I see is that a bunch of people are making money off of this. A bunch of people are making money off of weapons. A bunch of people are making money off a of conflict. 
Now we have a bunch of people making money off of sanctions because anytime you sanction a country, you open up business opportunities because you take them out of the market. So when you take Russia out of the market in natural gas, you open an opportunity for U.S. natural gas interests to go in and start supplying Europe where uh, Russia was doing it before. There's so much money to be made in conflict and war and killing that it's, it's, it's really criminal. And the arms dealers and the, the people who want war and profit from war and bankroll war and make money off of their loans, you know, you're criminals. You're criminals. It feels like that demonization aspect is ramping up because what Hamas did to Israel was so terrible that in order to be able to perpetuate an equal response, you almost have to dehumanize the people that you're going to do it to. Absolutely. Sure, demonization plays a role. If you can demonize somebody, whether they're Jews in Germany or Palestinians in Gaza, if you can make those people the problem, then you can come up with a final solution, can't you? That's what I don't understand, though, is it seems like... I understand. I mean, I can't understand, but I can empathize with the people in Israel who are in this situation after having what happened. But it seems like taking the retaliatory stance and just accepting that, you know, some civilians are going to die on the other side because Hamas uses civilians, that just seems like that's going to breed more hatred, Mm -hmm. which is just going to build another response. Because if you go over there, I mean, it, it just, I don't see how that, I get the want for revenge and I can't, argue against that because I'm not in that I'm not there but it just seems like that's going to breed more revenge and then the other side is going to attack back. It's like Gandhi Gandhi said an eye for an eye makes everyone blind. And that seems like the state that we're at. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that because they haven't they haven't invaded Gaza yet but they're amassing an army right and the fear is that. No they have. They have invaded. Absolutely. Oh, you're talking about ground troops going in? Ground troops, no, yeah. No, they've shelled the hell out of it with airplanes. They've had, they've been blockading Gaza for 15 years. I mean, there's, a war has been going on. Maybe you were a little kid when it started. But uh, the war between Israel and Gaza has been going on for decades. And to, to, uh, to get into this game of, well, who started it? And this is what I, what I wrote on my, uh, my thing. By the way, it's uh, Abu Francis at substack.com. Abu Francis.substack.com. Um, a child says, he started it. I say, the adults say, who's going to end it? And that's where I come from. I'm the big dad here. Who's going to end it? Yeah, I don't think we have any adults left in the building anymore. <laughs> Sad. The, uh, this idea that, or this is an idea that I've come across and I haven't, I'm not as well versed in the whole conflict as I would like to be. I'm still, I'm watching a couple podcasts trying to catch up, but I've heard that the idea of a two-state solution has been 
provided or the opportunity of it has been provided to the Palestinians and that they've rejected it or more specifically maybe Hamas has rejected it. Do you, does that check with what you know? Well, um, one state, two state goes all the way back to 48. So just a little perspective. In 1948, the British ran Palestine. The British got Palestine after World War I. So after World War I, one of the big changes in the Middle East was the a dismantling of the Ottoman Empire. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Turks ran the Middle East. It's called a caliphate. And the Ottomans were the caliphs, and they ran the show. And after World War I, the, the Turks kicked out, the, you know, dismantled the caliphate, went secular, Kamal Ataturk. And so the, the Ottoman Empire was dismantled, and guess what? Western allies wanted to midwife the Middle East and other parts of the world into enlightened democracy. So they created these mandates, they called them. And in the Middle East, the French and the British got most of the mandates. And the goal of the mandate, and these are League of Nations mandates, the goals of the mandates were to birth these former imperial provinces into modern democracies. And the British had Palestine. The problem is, is that the British had more or less promised both the Arabs and the Jews that they would have a place in Palestine. And prior to the British pulling out, there was coexistence in Palestine between Jews and Arabs and, and Arabs between Muslim and Christian Arabs. And this coexistence started to fall apart because the British are going to pull out. And it's like the, the sense I get is that all groups wanted the British out. <laughs> Yeah, we don't need you Brits are here, here to tell us how to run our country. But there wasn't any necessarily any good plan for how it would go down when the British left. So they had a couple of different commissions, and, and, and finally the UN came up with this, what they call a partition plan. And they basically said, here's a map. And what we're going to do is we're going to give the area here in, in blue to the Jews and we're going to give the area here in red to the Arabs. Now, we've worked on this map, and we're hoping that there's not a whole lot of displacement, but there's, there's going to be displacement because there's going to be Jews in the Arab areas, and there's going to be Arabs in the Jewish areas. But it's not going to be as bad as India. You know, it's going to be pretty clean, and just get ready to move. If you're in the wrong area, get ready to move. And... Basically, everybody is saying, nah, I don't like this idea at all. The, the Jews had a lot of mixed feelings about it. They don't say that now, but there were a lot of mixed feelings at the time. And I guess the, the sentiment that rose to the top was, well, you know, it's better than nothing. We'll take the partition plan. 
it's going to give us more than we otherwise probably would get. And the Arabs are saying, forget the partition plan. Now, you could spin that to say, see, the Arabs didn't, didn't want to play nice and the Jews did. But that's, I think, uh, disingenuous. I think asking anybody to flee their homes and go somewhere else is kind of asking a lot. None of us would want to do it. What could have happened, and if I were, you know, ruling the world, this is what I would have had the UN do. Create a regular state. Create a regular state where everybody gets the vote and you just go ahead and get on with your democracy. There isn't any category. There isn't any like, oh, you're race A, you're religion B. I just would like not do that. I wouldn't come up with Jewish and Arab areas. I'd just come up with a state like the United States. I think the United States is a pretty good example of, of absorbing lots of different kinds of people. Now, every time we do that, there's, you know, populism and we're against the immigrants and I'm being part Irish. So, you know, when the Irish are coming over, uh, they, the white people here didn't want Irish because, you know, they're not, they're not us. They're not, they weren't even considered white. They were considered Catholic. So we have that, you know, we have that human thing about, you know, I don't want these, these uh, other types coming into my space. But uh, so it would have been a challenging thing, but a one-state solution might have worked. And there were lots of Israelis that wanted that. But the Zionist program, which is there must be Jewish control and Jewish People need to be in the driver's seat at the expense of every other kind of person. That Zionist program really won out in Israel. And so efforts to push for a one-state solution were just, just never got anywhere. And eventually the Palestinians agreed to a two-state solution. And that's where we have the Palestinian Authority more or less getting some autonomy in the West Bank. There was a lot of movement, Oslo Accords, a lot of movement to say, okay, we'll go with the two-state solution. It's probably the best we can do. And yet, in some ways, a two-state solution is a failure. It's a failure to really recognize the rights of people and the humanity of everyone. So there are people that don't like the two-state solution, and there are people who don't like the one-state solution, and there are people who want this or that. But maybe one day, people will lay down their guns. If enough generations pass, I don't know. The, the old guard, the Menachem Begin types are gone. You get their, the next generation, the next generation, sure. You got hardliners. You got Netanyahu, who should be in jail, running the country. Most presidents and prime ministers should be in jail um, instead of running countries, but <clears throat> there they are. So I think a two-state solution might work. A one-state solution would be my preference, but I don't live there, and that's... I don't get to vote in that election. Yeah, I don't know how that 
how we move closer to that with the trajectory that they're on over there. No, the trajectory today is that they're just going to drive the Palestinians into the sea. So I hope that trajectory is, God help us, that trajectory will be thwarted and we won't see genocide. That's, that'd be nice. Is the idea that there have been settlers or these little settler camps moving into Gaza and the West Bank, is there any validity to that? That's something I've come across online, but then there seems to be a lot of pushback that no, it's not actually happening. No, it, it's happening. And this, the, sett, the settler issue is, is huge. So I mentioned to you before that there was a plan put out by the Zionist, uh, World Zionist Council in 1978 with the solution that would help Israel move towards annexing these territories without taking in a whole bunch of Arabs and making them citizens. And that plan was to ring Arab areas with Jewish settlements so take every major town, every major village in the West Bank and plant people there, especially people who would be hostile to the Arab population that had already grown up there, so that they would get uncomfortable and that they would leave. So the original Zionist program did not involve genocide. That, that's good. The original Zionist program was just, just make it so miserable in Gaza and the West Bank, that they just leave. And they just go to Jordan, and they just go to the United Arab Emirates, and they go to Lebanon and Turkey, and they go to the United States, and they just get out of our country. And so we, we give them the neighbors that are neighbors from hell. And these settlers are the neighbors from hell. And the settlers are moving into housing tracks and condominiums and apartment buildings. When you hear the word settlement, you think it's like some kind of like barbed wire fence with a, a well and a donkey or something. No, these are suburbs, what we would consider suburbs. And moving in people who are most hostile towards Arabs and just make the place miserable. And this plan has gone on basically in lockstep ever since 1978. And when you hear people like President Clinton or President Bush or other people question and debate the moving ahead of Israeli settlements, you can look at this. You know, this is what happened is not a mystery here. What actually happened was people are moving in. People have been moving in, and Arabs have been moving out. And this is, under international law, a questionable, if not illegal, type of plan. Because international law says, you have a war, you negotiate a settlement with the people that you defeated. You don't just take their land. We're not supposed to do that anymore. We did it for most of human history, but we're not supposed to be doing that anymore. We did it with Hawaii, but we're not supposed to do it anymore. Well, that's the same kind of reasoning behind blockades, right? Isn't that also frowned upon under international law? I'm not, I'm not clear on that. Blockades or sanctions? Blockades? I think blockades. I, uh, I, no, I don't know the international laws regarding blockades. When you were there back in the 80s, did you... Could you see this building? Was there was it kind of palpable in the air back then? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, one of the things that I did was I met Palestinians. And so I met, for instance, a, a, a young lady in Haifa. She was born in Nazareth. She lives in Haifa. And historically speaking, those are Israeli Jewish areas. So those areas were um, taken in 1948, uh, and they have, those people were given Israeli citizenship. But there, there was a, a definite feeling on the part of, of this woman, her name was Hannah, that she wasn't equal. She was not an equal Israeli with the Jew, Jewish friend or neighbor or citizen. That there was a second-class citizenship there. And from what I could tell, uh, it was both a legal and cultural thing. Uh, she would often say that she was from Uruguay. I mentioned my friend, uh, my kibbutz uh, roommate was from Uruguay. She would often say she was from Uruguay because she was dark enough that the uh, Israeli Jewish people that she would have to deal with in her everyday life knew she wasn't really one of them. But she was brown because she was from Uruguay. And she was uh, torn. The whole, her whole life she was torn with this idea that she was a modern woman but a second-class citizen. I met um, an Anglican priest in Nazareth who, met, you know, his whole family, many generations grew up in Nazareth. And at the time I met him, they were building a Israeli-Jewish suburb just north of Nazareth, really, you know, styling kind of place, moving people in. And he was in the older part of Nazareth proper. And they were real concerned that the settlers were going to make life difficult for them in Israel. We're not talking about in the West Bank. So he told me that the mayor of Nazareth was a communist and that this had made some headlines. Mayor of Nazareth is a communist. And he wanted me to know that the mayor of Nazareth was not really a communist, but that the Communist Party was the only party that Israel would allow that would question its Zionist policies. Arab parties were not allowed. And since there are a lot of Jewish Israelis who are socialists and communists, Bolsheviks, they wanted a Communist Party and they wanted to question Zionist policy, and they wanted to question the settlements in the West Bank, and they wanted to question all these policies, but they didn't want a bunch of parties doing that. So the Knesset didn't allow Arabs to organize. So this, this priest's friend ran as a communist so that he could get up in the Knesset and, well, he, wasn't, he was mayor. He, he could get up as mayor and say, you know, we're supporting this and we're supporting that. A lot of those mayors in the West Bank were subsequently removed from the West Bank. I don't know if you read or ever read about the mayors being uh, flown to Lebanon, but 
there was a, I don't remember what year it was, but there was a whole rash of basically abductions. Anytime someone in one of the Arabic areas got up and started talking about questioning the settlements or questioning other Israeli policy, <clears throat> um, I don't know if it was the Shin Bet, the Secret Service, or it was the IDF, but you know, someone came in basically, abducted them, put them on a helicopter, and flew them out of the country. And their family had to sort of figure out, I, uh, hopefully they left a note or what they'd done with them. But I mean, this is, this is not democratic uh, way of running things. This is not, this isn't going to help. And that's something I think that we should have learned. You, Americans should have learned this in the war on terror. And that is that if you go kill, uh, if you kill a kid who's going to go um, suicide bomb a bus, another kid will rise up in his place. If you go and kill Osama bin Laden, another Osama bin Laden will rise up in his place. Because you haven't solved the problem. You haven't addressed the underlying issue. You haven't found common ground. What you've done is you took out one of the pawns. So another one, you know, pops up in his place. That's no way to make progress. Yeah, not a lot of progress going on. Well, the, and the war in Iraq is more on terror, but the whole WMD situation is a perfect example of just not only fabricating a line of facts, but just war for the sake of war, which kind of feels like that's where we're almost in that same position so, with Ukraine. So where were you in 2003 when they were debating weapons of mass destruction in I was Iraq? Maybe kindergarten? Kindergarten. Right. Maybe? Yeah. I would have been six. And when you were growing up, did you have a sense that that war was uh, a just war? Or had we had been told the truth? I arguably probably didn't think about it until I got out from high school. Had it been brought up to me, I probably would have sang the party line that what we were doing was good and that, mm -hmm. you know, we were fighting terror. We were trying to protect the homeland and sometimes you have to do some bad things in order to move forward a just cause. Just spit more propaganda, arguably. Well, I, th I think that like, you know, I mentioned the lesson of Vietnam, that is the government basically painted a false picture of the dire straits the world was in and the very need to send all of these Americans over there to fight in Vietnam. And the pattern just continues. So well, you, literally a false flag with, what was it, the Gulf of Tonkin? Yeah. So you get, you get to, uh, you know, 9-11 and 2003, and you have the president, the vice president, and... Uh, Colin Powell going to the United Nations and swearing on a stack of Bibles that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Now, we know, and it took a couple of years, but we know that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And we know that this was a false story. Do you think that you would trust that government again when they tell you we have, we have intelligence. We know this, this, is, this is going on. We know whether it's Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, or Vladimir Putin. 
Do you believe this government to tell you the truth? Do you believe them to te- do you uh, do you believe that they will tell you what's really going on, or is the pattern that they will tell you what they need to tell you so that you'll support their policy? Which which is it? And if there's anyone out there who hasn't asked any questions about Ukraine and isn't asking any questions about Gaza. These people need to like just look at their own recent history and say, when was the last time we were really told the truth and we know it about what really happened? And I would suggest that uh, we've probably been lied to by governments and corporations who stand to gain from their policies. Do you think that a lot of people are thinking about that, though? That's what I worry about with the rate of these crises is it doesn't feel like anybody has time to really dig into what happened, why it happened, who was at fault, where, where did we go wrong? It feels like we're just saying, okay, it happened. Now we're moving on to the next crisis. There's no room. You can't spare any bandwidth of attention because it's, we're already on the next thing. So if you try to look backwards and say, well, what happened? What happened with COVID? Like what we messed up there? Where did we go wrong? Nobody's saying that because we're on Ukraine and now you can't look back at Ukraine and say, Hey, what's, where are these hundreds of billions of dollars going? What, what's happening? Because yeah. now we've got Israel and Palestine. Yeah. Well, it's maybe that's the strategy. I don't know any high level government sources to tell you what the strategy is. I can only tell you that, um, what I have to offer at this time in my life, I think is to say, uh, you know, I've been around a while. I've seen a lot of things and I've seen some patterns and I'm committed to figuring out what really happened. And um, you can count on me to be genuine and as neutral as humanly possible and not interested in a drag down, knockout, drag down fight about anything. And what can we do? I think this is a question that you're going to have to answer. What do you do going forward as a young adult? What do you do for your kids and, and, you, and your future and your grandkids? What do you do with a system that appears to be ready to fall apart? And what response do you have for that? And I hope that people can give that some thought, you know, instead of just waiting for the, waiting for the asteroid to hit us, you know, what, what, or more likely the bombs to drop is what it feels like. How does JFK fold into all of this for you? Again, this is how I found you. You're teaching that OSHA class. Yeah, it's, it's 3.13. I just wanted to hit this real fast. Do we have time? Yeah, real quick. Real quick. What is the story with JFK? Are you, do you think he was so, assassinated? So, How did this class come to be? Well, uh, people in my age group, and, and the class is through OLLI. Uh, that's uh, you know Cal Poly Humboldt uh, Office of Extended Studies. It's open to anybody. It's not for credit, so you don't have to pay a lot. You know, it's a, mostly people's interests. It's not academic study. Uh, and we're coming on the 60th anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. Um, I think it could be asked, I remember Eddie Vedder asked the question, um, you know, who has the brain of JFK and what does it mean to us now? Uh, and in some ways, I, I asked myself, I mean, 
this is like ancient history to most people. It's like, what does it even matter um, whether or not the government or somebody else's government or some mobsters or whoever was involved in killing a president back in 1963? What does that even matter? And my answer is, there are a handful of events. You've talked about a lot of different crises, but there's a few crises that seem to have really changed the direction of the country and maybe the whole world. A few, like, you know, just events that had such impact, nobody, nothing was the same. I think 9-11, say in your lifetime, probably rates as that, even though you may not have been around at the time. Uh, it changed everything. And it moved us into a place where the United States was ready to give up liberties for security and go to war where we didn't know what we were doing because those two towers were brought down by those damn terrorists and we had to do something. JFK was kind of, for my generation, the assassination of JFK was that event where a president was killed. And almost immediately, people started saying, what really happened here? It wasn't like it took, you know, 10 years and then conspiracy theories start to uh, uh, pop up. I mean, the day after JFK was shot, news articles were saying Oswald was tied to Cubans. So the question of what really happened and who was behind it, was there a conspiracy, was a question that Americans asked on November 23rd, 1963. What really happened? And the, the taking of JFK off the table and having Lyndon Johnson come in to continue and escalate the Vietnam War instead of ending it was a huge thing that changed our country forever. And knowing who killed JFK and whether or not our CIA was involved or whether or not other players were involved, I think is an important historic question and has a lot to say about what events folded later, unfolded later. Let's say the CIA were involved, and I'm not saying they were, but as, as uh, Donald Sutherland's character in, in Oliver Stone's movie, JFK points out in his little scene with Kevin Costner, Donald Sutherland plays a guy named X, which is based on a guy, an actual person named Fletcher Prouty. When Donald Sutherland says, who had the ability to do it, who had the opportunity to do it, and the opportunity and the ability to cover it up? Those are good questions. Those are the same questions I ask about Nord Stream. Who had the ability to do it, the opportunity, and could cover it up? And the CIA has been covering stuff up my entire life. And we know this. It's not like a debate as to whether Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. We know he didn't. Either the CIA didn't know its fanny from its head, or they lied. Which one is it? Do you want a bunch of incompetent people running policy or a bunch of liars? Which one is it? And I think we need to continue 
to hold the government and the CIA in particular accountable and responsible for acting in America's interest or disinterest. And that's something that you're going to have to do. I tried, you know, what can I say? Trying to bring out facts, you know, as best I could do. Is that what you're trying to do with this class in a way is just kind of keep this information present in people's minds or? Well, I, I, if people are interested in knowing about uh, the Kennedy assassination, it'll be a good class because I'll go over um, kind of how it evolved in terms of public disclosure. And we've, we've got a lot more documents out now. There's still 4,000 documents that the CIA has not released in the name of national security. Um, a bunch of us asked the question, if Oswald was this kooky guy acting alone, what possible national security issue was there ever? So there really doesn't make any sense to have anything disclosed, uh, undisclosed. There doesn't seem to be anything that needs to be hidden, but it still is. But we have learned a lot, and we've learned a lot about Oswald and his affiliations with the CIA, his interactions with the CIA that we didn't know uh, in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, or 90s. Stuff has come out. And maybe more stuff will come out, and eventually in your lifetime, you'll actually see uh, a, a clear picture of what really happened. But I'll go over that. I have a, a bit of knowledge about what we know and what we still need to know. Well, Stephen, thanks for doing this, man. I want to get you out of here so you can make it to your place on time. Do you want to plug where people, again, can find your Substack, where they can sign up for the class if they want to do that, all of your stuff? Sure. Uh, um, Substack, I have uh, stephensaint.substack.com. I have abufrancis.substack.com. Uh, Stephen Saint is my more journalistic thing. My uh, Abu Francis is more personal. And uh, I'm, I'm teaching Ollie classes on an ongoing basis, and that's, you can find that. It's O-L-L-I, Osher uh, Institute of Lifelong Learning, and uh, it's at the Cal Poly um, website. Okay, well, Stephen, thanks again for okay. doing this. I had a lot of fun. Great. Thank you, Nick. Good luck. <laughs>